This is something I've been wondering for a while. Um, do do females compete with each other? Because we know men compete with each other to get yes, women. Yes, of course. Do females compete with each other? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, the methods of what we call female versus female competition, a very technical term. Um, one thing I love about evolutionary biology is actually the technical terms are pretty intuitive and pretty easy to understand. Um, like my, ta- my colleague Tanya Reynolds here at University of New Mexico specializes in, in studying female-female competition. Now, the typical forms that that takes tend to be more verbal and reputational Indeed. rather than direct violent oh, okay. conflict. Okay? So women might derogate each other behind each other's backs. True. They might... Um, try to manipulate each other's self-esteem. Yep. If they feel like they're sexual rivals competing for, for the same guys or for the same social status. So it's not like, you know, women getting into M- prehistoric MMA fights that much. It's more about using um, the weapons of uh, verbal creativity and theory of mind and, and social sensitivity to just get subtle but sustained advantages. Right. So... It's a nice way of saying they use the S word. Uh, they call them, you know, they call them quote unquote big. Um, they they call them quote unquote loose. Uh, you know, uh, they they try to reputation destroy behind their back, etc. Over your female rivals. So, high school basically. Yeah, high school. Not but just high school. And in prehistory. <laughs> forever. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. It does seem to get, at least I know that my relationship with other women has gotten a lot better since high school. So does, is that because the competition tones down or is that because we're all stuck together in a classroom? Nope. The reason why you have a better time now is because you're less of a threat because you're a single mother. Uh, I, I guess she's married now, but, um, you know, she's a um, divorcee who's again married and all women know that men don't want to deal with that um baggage so she's already kind of destroyed herself also she's old she's like um what 27 or 8 i think older maybe anyway girls uh, obviously a 28 year old girl is less competitive than an 18 year old girl so obviously the competition will be highest between 18 and 23 you would predict right which is the age when women are most attractive to all men. Uh, or, or do people get smarter and sneakier? What happens there? I, uh, yeah, good insights. I think it's a combination of all of that. Smarter and sneakier, so you're using less obvious competitive tactics. So, um, for example, one thing that can happen is women can be in a friendship circle and you want to sort of derogate or ostracize or marginalize one particular woman in the group so she has lower status. Instead of women saying, okay, um, Jane over there, she's a bad person, we should avoid her, you could say something like, you know, I'm really worried about Jane because it just seems like she's, um, mm. she has really mm. bad taste in men and she... Right, exactly. <laughs> Classic. That's like, if you've, if you've worked in a work environment where girls talk, you hear that stuff all the time. Hello and welcome to Helios Blog. My name is Helios, here for another reaction video. If you're new to the channel, liking the content, hit that sub, hit all for notifications. If you'd like to support me, 
I do have a Patreon with exclusive content. Patreon.com slash The Helios Blog. Just go there and subscribe. Again, Patreon.com slash The Helios Blog. You could also drop me a donation. Adrian R. and Tom M. Shout out to them. They've already done it. Why not you as well? Again, it's in the description. The link is in the description. Okay, uh, let's continue here. He's, you know, I, I'm worried about her drinking. Indeed. You know, whatever. And so there will be the, the implanting of negative information about some rival within her friend group or her colleagues or coworkers. And then the other women will, will think, oh, well, this person derogating her is expressing what sounds like genuine empathic interest. Like they're concerned about Jane's drinking and, and her being too slutty and stealing other men or whatever, right? <laughs> but the information itself is enough to lead other women to kind of marginalize that, that target. If you guys haven't heard, I have launched... Nope. We're skipping this advertisement. Stupid. That's what they do. And I feel like some people are less interested in that. Is that from personality differences? Yeah, I'm a big what I'm is a that? big fan of the big five personality traits system and I've I've often used it in my research. It's a man, it's a great thing to measure. When in doubt, if you're running a psych study, try to get some measure of general cognitive ability or intelligence if you can, and try to measure the big five. Because they're almost always predictive. In this particular case, female versus female competition, um, it'll probably be a combination of low agreeableness which is kind of associated with sociopathy, you know, assertiveness and a little Machiavellianism and manipulativeness. Um, there'll be a little bit of extroversion mixed in, in terms of being socially assertive enough to try to manipulate other people rather than just kind of withdrawn and introverted. Um, and I think it also takes maybe a relatively high degree of emotional stability or low neuroticism to do these tactics, right? Because they can't, they're risky and they can backfire. So if a woman's very um, neurotic, worried, anxious, depressed, she's not as likely, I think, to use these kinds of uh, tactics. But that's pretty speculative. Just... It's pretty speculative, but that's where I'd, I'd put a bet. So what's the point here? If you want a less manipulative girl, what traits are you looking for? You're looking for a girl who's more agreeable, who's more neurotic, you see, who's more introverted. That's the the conclusion to draw from here. What kinds of girls are we looking for to deal with in the long term that are likely to be less manipulative? And I'm sure you guys listening in the audience will notice that the girls you've dated in the past for long term are actually, they tend to be more introverted, more neurotic, right? And, um, you know, um, more agreeable. These are things that men actually like. That's pretty funny. So it might be an evolved strategy for women that are maybe less desired, d- desired, right? Because of their personality to beat the other girls out, right? Uh, and make themselves a, a competitor, it's it's kind of interesting. Okay. I hope it's speculative. You've just described exactly my personality. Almost. Actually, not not entirely. No. Um, the agreeableness, my 
my do you have you ever split it up into like subdomains yeah, the facets. so agreeableness splits into yeah yeah the facets sorry um i scored almost zero in politeness but yeah. compassion was like 89 so i right so you're masculine which explains a lot about why your first marriage died explains a lot if you're high in extroversion low in agreeableness and you know duplicity or whatever m manipulativeness um yeah low in agreeableness uh and low in neuroticism much more likely to manipulate and actually I, I, again a lot of the stuff like if you look at michaela peterson's divorced video you'll see that a lot of the stuff she says is full-on just manipulating the audience trying to control the narrative it's something that uh girls do in their competition with each other i guess that doesn't make me like unreasonably disagreeable on average. Yeah, I think those, so the, the, the facet level traits are really important because a lot of people have kind of vaguely heard of the big five, like from you or from Jordan Peterson or, or whoever, but each of them has these subcomponents, right? Just like intelligence has components like spatial intelligence, verbal intelligence, uh, social intelligence. Any given big five trait, like agreeableness, will have these little components like compassion, politeness. I'm I'm kind of like you. Like online on Twitter, I'm not super polite. In person, I'm highly polite, and I I like to think I'm pretty compassionate in terms of like actually caring about people and animals and so forth. Actually, being high in compassion doesn't necessarily mean you're high in empathy, right? Um again, here's what's funny. A lot of girls, they're not actually good at empathy. That's the, you know, the societal trick. They say, oh, women are the romantics. Women are highly empathetic. They're empaths or whatever. Actually, it's not true. Women are very good at sympathy. Sympathy is not empathy. Sympathy is appearing to agree with how you're feeling. That's sympathy. Empathy is actually feeling that feeling that you're feeling and it affecting them. I would say many women, and especially in 2023, they're trained to do this, that they virtue signal. Look at how great a person I am. I empathize with X, Y, Z. But they don't, actually. They're just pretending to empathize by sympathizing as a tactic to get what they want. That's different than actually being empathetic. All right. Uh, on to an article, uh, not an article. This is actually from Rolo Tomasi's book, The Rational Male. This is Plate Theory 3, Transitioning. You cannot help anyone until you first helped yourself. The following was posted with permission from a consult I did. Hi, Rolo. My name is Akash, and I'm a big fan of your posts. They're always lucid, log logical, and insightful. I discovered the community about five months ago after yet another failed relationship categorized by highly AFC behavior on my part. It ended with a tremendous amount of guilt as I felt that because she was a good person, I ought to have made it work even though I wasn't in love with her. I'm 27. Based on your post, I would really appreciate your advice on two issues. Number one, how to make the best use of my impending return to school in May for a second undergraduate degree. And two, how to overcome the cognitive dissonance I feel about pursuing women outside the confines of a committed relationship as I still suffer from social conditioning that tells me I will hurt women by pursuing primarily bedroom fund relationships with them, and so it's immoral to do so. If you'd like to post a reply on the forum rather than by a PM for the benefit of others, that's fine with me. 
I wanted to direct these queries to you as I believe I benefit from your world, world-wise opinion. Sincerely look forward to hearing from you. Best, Akash. And here is Roro's response. To begin with, you've only been involved in the community for the past five months. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is that it takes time to mold your personality and unlearn mental schemas you've become conditioned to consider integral parts of your current personality. One of the biggest obstacles most men have with accepting the fundamentals of a positive masculine mindset is the attitude that personality is static and uncontrollable. A lot of this, that's just how I am mentality, comes from this basic conditioning and needs to be addressed from the outset since this almost universally is an ego investment on the part of a guy who's probably emotionally distressed, confused, and or frustrated. Understand now that personality is ultimately what you determine it to be. This isn't to say that external factors don't influence personality. Indeed, these variables and outside influences are exactly the reason men such as yourself do seek out the community. However, it's you to determine what's comfortable for you and what will constitute the traits that make your personality your own. You're most definitely not a blank slate, but you have the capacity to erase parts you don't like or are unusable and rewrite new parts that you like and prove efficient. Issues. Uh, How to make best use of the school degree. This all depends on what your own personal goals are. The best use you can make of this time is to devote yourself completely to achieving the purpose for which you decided to pursue a second degree in the first place. I can only assume you're working for this degree with a sad outcome in mind, but is this what you truly want? I ask this because I know far too many men who've altered the course of their lives to better accommodate the women in their lives or to facilitate their insecurities and fear of rejection. It's not an unfamiliar story to me to hear of how a guy opted for a certain university or career path because he'd convinced himself that he would sustain a relationship that he was fearful of losing, or he felt was his responsibility as a man, or to be supportive of her ambitions at the sacrifice of his own. The conclusion of this scenario, more often than not, ends with a bitter man mad at himself at the long-term result of his choices after the woman he'd striven so long to accommodate leaves him for another man who held fast to his own identity and ambition, which is exactly what made him attractive to her. I'm not sure how, uh, how or if it fits into your conditions, but let it serve as an illustration for reclaiming and remolding your own personality. Only you have the hindsight to ad- assess why you've made certain decisions in your life. I'm only asking you to be as brutally critical of your true motivations for making them. Maybe it's time you review why you decided to pursue a second degree. Number two, how to overcome the cognitive dissonance I feel about pursuing women outside the confines of a committed relationship as I still suffer from social conditioning. Any reasonable, attractive woman knows you'd like to have bedroom fun with her. It's a primal chemical instinct, and to be bluntly honest, there's nothing wrong with it. In certain Islamic sects, men are allowed to take temporary wives for a set period of time, in addition to their permanent wives, so long as they support them financially. Some Mormons practice open polygamy in a similar fashion. Some men marry and divorce multiple times and support them at the same time, also known as soft polygamy. All of these practices are considered to a greater or lesser degree moral. The dissonance occurs when the rationalizations for a behavior conflict with the motivations for it and the associative psychosocial stigmas that get attached to it. Sorry for the $10 words here, but your feelings of guilt or hesitancy and a desire to explore multiple relationships is a calculated result of a very effective social conditioning with a latent purpose meant to curb a natural impulse. Recognizing this is the first step to progressing beyond it and actually using it to your advantage. As men, our biological impetus is a desire for unlimited access to unlimited bedroom fun with females bearing the best physical attributes. Ever wonder why the P word has been an ever-present element of human society for millennia? 
It, it simulates exactly this virtual access. This is a rudimentary fact, and on some level of consciousness, both men and women understand this. No amount of proselytizing or social conditioning will erase what God and evolution hard-coded into our collective biopsychological desires and behaviors. Admittedly, social conventions have historically made a good run at limiting this drive, but it can never purge this, because in essence, it's a survival-ensuring attribute for us. I won't argue against the utility and the latent purpose of absolute monogamy. No other method proves more valuable in parental investment and developing a strong masculine and feminine psyche in a person than that of a committed opposite gender two-parent family. I feel it's necessary to add here that I am thoroughly unconvinced that gender identity is exclusively a set of learned behaviors as many in the mainstream would like us to believe. There is simply too much biological evidence and the resulting psychological and behavioral responses to gender differences to accept this, making it vitally important that a child be taught a healthy appreciation for both the masculine and feminine influences in their psyches. The genders were meant to be complementary, not adversarial. I certainly would never condone infidelity based on just this principle alone, since it seems the most beneficial for healthy adults. It's when this healthy monogamy becomes clouded by infantile, emotionally insecure romanticism, with the resulting expectations that are derived from them, that it becomes necessary for man to cultivate an attitude of being the prize. Adopting this mindset broadens his selection of opportunities for monogamy to his greatest advantage prior to committing to monogamy. In other words, if you're essentially sacrificing your capacity to pursue your biological imperative, pragmatically, you want to choose a partner of the highest quality from the broadest pool of potentials people you're capable of attracting. The downside of this proposition is twofold. First, your ability to attract a sizable pool of quality applicants is limited by factors you immediately have available. At 37, if all goes well, you'll be more financially stable and mature than you are at 27. The 37-year-old you will, in theory, be more attractive to a long-term prospect than the 27-year-old you. Secondly, women's bedroom fund value decreases the age, meaning there's no guarantee that your beautiful, vivacious 27-year-old bride will remain so at 37. In fact, the odds are she won't. All this makes betting your biological imperative on monogamy critically important and thus deserving of the widest possible selection. Men literally live and die according to their options, so stands the reason they ought to entertain a prolonged period in their lives where they're open to exploring the most options they have access to while concurrently developing and improving themselves prior to making a commitment of this magnitude. This is precisely where most men fail. They buy into an internalized one-itis, like social contrivances that are little more than effective means of embedding a self-expectation of accountability and liability to make this commitment irrespective of maturity level or personal success. The saddest ones, the AFC ones, are the pitiable men who carry these contrivances into marriage and even old age without ever understanding that they had more potential which they squandered due to an inability to see past these contrivances and learn to be selective based on experience. A truly powerful man jealously guards his most precious resources, his independence and his ability to maneuver. In other words, his options and his ability to exercise them. True power isn't about controlling others, but the degree to which you control the course of your own life and your own choices. Commitment to anything always limits this. When you step through one door, a hundred more close behind you. You're free to do what you want, right? You can always quit a job, divorce a wife, change your school. But how many men do you know who are what they, uh, who are what they are today as a result of their own doing, unfettered by their choices and unimpacted by their girlfriend, wife, kids, or parents? By comparison, how many guys do you know who dutifully stick to a dead-end job that's slowly killing them because it's better than dealing with the consequences and backlash it would have on his family? Are they free to quit? Sure, but not without an impact on their families and relationships. So where does this leave you? You have two paths, I see it. You can explore your options with multiple girls, and should you decide 
to become bedroom fun involved, do so while maintaining non-exclusivity. Put off and unlearn the expectations you've been conditioned to accept. Social contrivances that truly explore your opportunities while bettering your own conditions in anticipation for becoming monogamous at some later point. Or you can remain in your sense of moral doctrine and still non-exclusively date and explore your options while you continue to better yourself with the caveat that you know you'll be limiting your depth of experience. I won't denigrate on a decision to opt for this, but far too few religious men have the perseverance to stay objective in the decision to hold out and overlook marriage character flaws in women they'd like to be their spouse in a furious rush to marry them and get to the bedroom fun part. Better to fall short in conviction than make hurried decisions that will negatively alter your life. Perhaps this isn't even what you're driving at, I don't know if it's a religious conviction or internalized social controversy, but isn't it interesting that both are so closely associated? Regardless, women should only ever be a complement to your life. Enlightened self-interest. Uh, you can't help anyone unless you first helped yourself. Okay, back to this video here. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Very cool. Uh, well, I guess we might as well talk about what effective altruism is. This is a movement launched about 10 or 12 years ago by a couple of Oxford moral philosophers, Will McGaskill and Toby Ord. And it's grown into this kind of global movement of tens of thousands of people, mostly young people, mostly highly compassionate, maybe a little bit Aspergery <laughs> on average, like um, highly rational highly systematizing people. And the concept is try to do the most good that you can in the world, but using reason and evidence and open-minded kind of rational debate rather than just virtue signaling or rather than just going with your, your gut feeling or your empathy, right? So what the effective altruists tended to talk about a lot is, look, if you're going to give to charity, um, try to find charities that actually have good empirical evidence that what they're spending money on actually does some good, actually works. So they like recommending charities that have actually run like randomized clinical trials for their interventions. So for example, one thing that really seems to help to reduce global poverty is a thing called direct cash transfers. So there's an organization called Give Directly where you can donate money to them and they'll simply like wire the money to poor people who could use okay this seems useless let's go on to personality traits of a psychopath i what's the evolutionary benefit of psychopathy why is that still around there's a lot of discussion about this and there are i think very good insights going all the way back to the 1980s right people have been discussing this if humans evolved in small clans and tribes where you know everybody and you gather huge amounts of social information about people you interact with regularly, you might think there's just no room to be a psychopath. If you're regularly exploiting, deceiving, manipulating people, aren't people going to find out and push you out of the clan? And that's basically <laughs> death sentence, right? Exile equals death. Yeah. Indeed. If you're in a prehistoric situation where you cannot survive by yourself out in the wilderness. Well, my personal hunch, actually, is that the rates of psychopathy in small hunter-gatherer societies are quite low. For sure. I think it's correct. You can't survive as a psychopath in a small it's true. clan where everybody knows you. However, 
once you get civilization and agriculture and city-states and big populations and you can move from group to group sequentially, uh. then suddenly there's a niche. There's a niche for the psychopath. So my hunch actually is psychopathy, sociopathy more generally, might be a fairly recent development and just kind of post-civilization development. I'm almost certain that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. That seems logical. Um, because antisocial behaviors um, will not work in a small group, right? But antisocial behaviors that favor you as an individual, that don't hurt your group, but hurt other groups that might be around, actually could have quite a benefit. And in fact, you know, politics is full of that sort of thing. And so is big business, etc. All right. On to the Reddit post. My GF, she's 26, is treating me, 27, like trash and calling me a P-word after we had an altercation with another couple. So a few days ago, my GF picks me up from work. As she's pulling out from the parking lot, a guy almost hits a car. The road is curved down a hill, so you can only see so far behind you. And this guy is going 60 miles per hour in a 30, totally his fault. And he could have avoided her probably, but he slammed on his brakes just in case. Wasn't my girlfriend's fault, but she still reversed back and let him pass and lifted her hand to apologize. But at that point, he started cursing and waving his hands around his passing us. Now my girlfriend is pretty hard-headed, so she freaks out. So look, already two red flags. First red flag is she's driving the car. Second one is she freaks out like this. Chases him down, cuts him off before a red light, and backs an inch away from his car. She opens the door and starts yelling at him, calling him a B-word, and asking him why he's waving his hands. Him and his girlfriend kept quiet, and I told her to stop too. Later on, we somehow ended up at the same mall parking lot, and I apologized to them. At that point, she freaks out at me, says, what am I doing that for? An uh, an A-word almost hit us, and we all start arguing. The guy starts threatening us. I try to leave, but he slaps me. So my girlfriend starts fighting him, and I pull his back. Yeah, so you see what I'm I'm saying? It it almost seems here that the girl is playing the guy's role, and the guy is playing the girl's role. It's backwards. So I understand. Uh, And I pull us back. Somehow no one got hurt. But after that, my girlfriend has been calling me a P-word and saying she's disappointed. I think I did the right thing, didn't want anyone to get hurt. And if the guy kept coming, I would fight him, of course. But she doesn't believe me. And I don't know if a relationship can work if your girl thinks you're a P-word. Let's look at the top comment here. 28 upvotes. Apologizing for your girlfriend is a bad idea. Uh, 189 upvotes. I agree with you wanting to de-escalate. It would have been great if everyone, if everything ended after the second paragraph. However, it sounded like everything ended, but you decided to approach them in the parking lot to apologize. It's one thing to de-escalate, and it's another to go actively apologizing to them when they're in the wrong. Like, why? Were they coming at you aggressively again or something? Was he threatening you guys before you apologized? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so here's here's uh here's what I want to point out. I think he's apologizing for this part. So this is the comment. Now my girlfriend is hot-headed, so she freaks out, chases him down, cuts him off, starts yelling at him. Uh and yeah, the the comment is this is literally crazy dangerous behavior. This is how people get hurt, really hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Um so no. Again, guys, I would end the relationship with a girl like this. She's too masculine. She's causing problems for you. I'm not interested in that. Again, that's my opinion. You let me know in the comments what you think. 
again, guys, uh, let's end the video there. Again, if you're new to the comment, uh, new to the comment, huh? If you're new to the channel, liking the content, hit that sub, hit all for notifications. If you'd like to support me, go to my Patreon and subscribe. It's patreon.com slash the blog. Uh, I also, you can also donate like uh, Adrian R or Tom M. Shout out to them. Link is in the description. Thank you so much for listening, guys, especially if you took the time to listen to the end of the video. Really do appreciate it. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time.